You're listening to John Anderson Direct with John Lennox. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. It's a great honour and privilege today to be able to talk to John Lennox, a man I've admired for his sharp intellect and clarity and breadth of knowledge, as well as courage, uh, in the public square for a very long time. He's a very interesting and a very astute public intellectual. He's also a defender of what the remarkable C.S. Lewis once termed mere Christianity and is an emeritus professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's no stranger to Australia. He's been here quite a few times. He's uh, been on shows such as Q&A, where he consistently displayed not only the qualities that I've also mentioned already, but great civility and great good humour and great patience and great understanding. He's published extensively on the interface of science, philosophy and theology. He's engaged in numerous public debates, defending the Christian faith against well-known atheists, including Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens and Peter Singer. He's the author of quite a number of books, including Can Science Explain Everything? And most recently, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? So, John, thank you so much for your time. It's really good of you to come to us all the way from Oxford. It's wonderful to be back in Australia, albeit virtually. Well, to kick off, I understand that uh, back when you were very young in Cambridge, at Cambridge University, you were actually able to sit in on some of C.S. Lewis's last formal lectures. Many would say that he was the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. The remarkable little uh, factoid, I suppose, that I came across the other day was that the BBC commissioned him to do a series of broadcasts to boost morale during the darkest days of that struggle for civilization called the Second World War. Uh, and only one has survived. But uh, a remarkable man, not only for his books, for his speeches, but also for the Narnia series that have been made into well-known movies. Did he have anything about him in particular that inspires you today, John? And did he have any impact on the way you think about truth and indeed about faith? I remember his lectures extremely vividly because it was in 1962 and I had read most of his books before I left school. And I knew he was at Cambridge. I didn't know he was dying and that he'd refused any lecturing in the previous term. But in the Michaelmas term in 62, he was back in the Faculty of English lecturing on John Donne's poetry. And since that was just across the road from the maths department, I sneaked out a few times, skipped the maths lectures and listened to Lewis. And I'm very glad I did. The main impact was not only the brilliance of his delivery and the cleverness with which he wove in gentle comments on his Christian commitment, but the physical situation, because it was very cold and the room was completely packed with students all over the floor, sitting in the windows, uh, no health and safety, of course, in those days. And he came in. He's quite a heavily built chap with a thick coat on and a long scarf and a hat. 
and he started lecturing the moment he burst through the double door. And as he picked his way through the crowd, he was still lecturing as he took off his scarf and his hat and his coat slowly. So that by the time he was at the podium, you'd had three or four minutes of an absolutely brilliant lecture. And that went on for about 50 minutes. And then he reversed the process. He kept lecturing while he put on his hat, wound up his scarf, put on his coat. And the last few words were, brilliantly calculated to coincide precisely with his bursting out through the double doors. There was no Q&A. So that's my memory of him. And in fact, I've just done a film, a documentary film with Kevin Sorbo, who's a Hollywood actor, on my apologetic activity. And we reenact that scene in that lecture room as part of the film. It's called Against the Tide. And it's to be released in America on the 19th of November. Did he have an impact on me? He had a colossal impact on me. My father discovered him and gave me mere Christianity when I was about 13. And I devoured it because he introduced me to the logic of Christianity. That was the first thing, the clarity of his arguments. Mm. And I learned a great deal from that. But Lewis, beyond that, he was no mathematician. Uh, we nearly lost Lewis because he failed the algebra paper and he didn't have to resit it because the World War intervened, which is a great thing. Otherwise, he'd never have got to Oxford. But he had a very good geometric intuition and he used his reason and imagination to provide illustrations of the more complex aspects of Christian thinking. And I find those very helpful. But his major contribution to my thinking, which is very active today, was his unpacking and deconstruction of naturalistic philosophy. And he showed me very clearly because of his deep grasp of the philosophy of science, which is one reason many scientists don't like him. He understood exactly what was going on, that he could see that naturalism undermined not only science, but rationality itself. And that is a central argument even today, in my view. Now, that is extremely interesting. Can we just explore that for a moment? Many people would be surprised to learn, and I'm convinced by this case, uh, but uh, others might not, that Christianity had a major and positive role to play in the development of science itself. Yes, absolutely. I mean, but the popular line now, of course, is that science and Christianity are somehow at war with one another, incompatible, and yet science in many ways is a product of a Christian worldview that says there's a God out there who did things and does things in an ordered way, we therefore have an opportunity to go and understand that order and to explore creation, to put it that way. But that's completely washed out of the narrative today. Yes, it is. And ignorance of history is a very dangerous thing, as you know. It's, it's sad, but Lewis pointed it out very clearly, and he was actually stating a thesis which is commonly accepted by leading historians of science, and they're the important people here. And Lewis's summary is memorable. It is this. 
men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. And he was really summarizing the work of the philosopher and historian Sir Alfred North Whitehead. But today that thesis is widely represented. You have a very famous representative of it in Australia. And not only in Edwin Judge, the distinguished historian, but in the younger Peter Harrison, who's a distinguished Australian professor. And he adds to it very interestingly that it wasn't only the Judeo-Christian worldview believing in an intelligent creator and the rationality of the universe, but Peter Harrison actually goes further. And he says that a great contribution was made by the reformers' attitude to scripture. Going to scripture, not with ideas of uh, allegory or what it should tell us, but rather to see exactly what it said. And Kepler did the same with the universe. Let's see what it says. And that changed the face of science for, for all time. So there's a very close connection. There are various nuances, of course, but I find it one of the strong evidences for Christianity. And I often put it this way, John, I say to people, look, I'm not ashamed of being both a scientist and a Christian because arguably Christianity gave me my subject. The mathematician, David Belinsky, has written a book uh, called, I think... He has. Yeah, I think the title's a play on Dawkins's book, The God Delusion, and I think Belinsky, even though he's an agnostic himself, not a believer, called his uh, The Atheist Delusion. Now, presumably he, like Lewis, faced massive opposition, or faces opposition, uh, to this perspective from scientists, and yet the reality is that surely we need to accept science cannot answer all questions. And... Uh, Perhaps we need to remember that scientists can be human too. Uh, they're human, they can make mistakes. They don't get everything right. None of us do. There's a wonderful quote from the Nobel Prize winner, Richard Feynman, who says outside his field, the scientist is just as dumb as the next guy. And <laughs> I, I think that there are various sources for this problem. It's quite complex because Part of it is sociological and cultural, as distinct from being purely scientific. The Enlightenment attitude to a corrupt church meant that people pushed in the direction of getting rid of God. And then there was Newton's view of the universe, which ironically actually led to a distancing of people from the concept of God. They had the notion of a clockwork universe, and it seemed to run on its own. So God, if he existed at all, became a kind of deistic figure in the distance. But then added to that, there are two major problems that people get very confused about when it comes to science and God being incompatible. Science is in the business of explanation. And the argument is that if you've got a scientific explanation, you don't need the God explanation. The idea that God is not necessary is very prominent these days. And it is that because, particularly of the late Stephen Hawking. But this is a confusion. 
as to the kind of explanation that God provides. Hawking actually suggested that we have to choose between God and science, and Dawkins is in the same position. And to my mind, that's a failure to realize the found God explanation and explanation in terms of science, by which I mean the natural sciences. And in my book, Can Science Explain Everything? I give a very simple illustration. Why is the water boiling? Well, there's a scientific explanation in terms of heat transfer across the base of a kettle agitating molecules. But then there's a personal explanation. The water is boiling because I would very much like a cup of tea. Now, any child can see, and I know that because I lecture in schools, that those two explanations don't contradict, they don't conflict, but they complement, and both are necessary. And what amazes me is that some of the leading scientists that I've encountered and discussed with cannot see that the God explanation no more contradicts a scientific explanation, a correct one, of course, than Henry Ford explanation contradicts the law of internal combustion as accounting for the existence of a motor car. They complement each other. And I think if folks grasp that, it would take a huge amount of heat out of the equation. We're talking about different kinds of explanation. And explanation occurs at these different levels. That's one of the main issues that I have to contend with all the time. Well, science has been, for many people, the great blocker to faith for quite a while, we're told. But I wonder, in fact, whether that's still the case. If you think of critical theorists and where they've gone to, they reject not just religion, not all great um, political theories, uh, not just modern thinking, but science and reason and the Enlightenment as well. They've got to the point where they would argue that the fundamental problem uh, in the world today is racism and that racism in is, is, in essence, white supremacy. So you've got now a whole construct that's moved well outside the basis of reason and has left science behind. So, so now you've got a problem where, frankly, the science community needs to realise that they are being rejected and challenged just as Christians are, and that what's taken its place is a deep commitment to emotional uh, and, and, and heated and often very personalised presentation of worldviews that are no longer based not just in faith, but they're not based in science and reason either. So haven't we moved to a different place now? There may be some people for whom science is the blocker, but not most. Well, some people have, and it's ironic you know, that these people come up with these views by using their reason. They can't get rid of reason. And I think part of the problem in the initial part of what you just said is that the concept of faith has been so twisted and distorted that people don't realize when they pit science against faith, they're contradicting themselves because the whole scientific endeavor, as we saw from the earlier part of our conversation depends on believing in the rational intelligibility of the universe. And Einstein said, I cannot imagine a genuine scientist without that faith. So we need to reset 
the compass bearing and point out that the atheist, the current atheist definition of faith is completely false. It is a religious concept and it means believing where there's no evidence. It's not a religious concept, it's an ordinary concept. And faith coming from Latin fides has got the idea of trustworthiness, reliability, and evidence base. But the postmodern move, which thankfully is not uh, true of everybody, leading to what you say, the most, the more emotional, touchy-feely stuff, that goes out the window once they confront a bank manager. Uh, yeah. in, the, in the sense that all this talk about there's no such thing as truth and science tells us nothing and all, all this kind of stuff completely disappears because people cannot live without a truth concept and they cannot live without reason. And if you go for a mortgage in any good Australian bank and you say, I'd like to borrow a million dollars and the bank manager says but you've only got 50,000 to your credit oh that's only your truth they'll not get very far with that kind of argumentation so I refuse to bow to the idea that this is characteristic of an entire generation a friend of mine puts it this way he says people are only relativist and postmodern in areas that they think are unimportant now, those areas may be growing, but there are still areas for every one of us that are important for reason, truth, factuality, uh, play a central role, and we cannot avoid it. And I think it's a mistake to play into uh, such people's hands because civilization would collapse without the concept of truth, rationality, and indeed morality. Well, it occurs to me that COVID has actually made us realise that we want to know the facts. We want to know real information. We want to know what's true and what's fake and what we can know and what we can't know. It's an example of something where we don't resort to the idea of, well, it's only dangerous if you think it's dangerous. Uh, what do I mean by that? You might think about it one way. You might think it's dangerous. I might think it's not dangerous. And they're both equally relevant if we believe our position to be true. There's a limit to this idea of moral relativism. We don't really believe it at all. When the chips are down, when reality dawns, we know that moral relativism doesn't work. We want to know what the scientists and what the medicos can tell us about it. You've written a book about coronavirus, which goes right to the heart then of faith. And the question mark that many people still have, the one that's been around for a long time, is of course this one of suffering. How can a good God allow a terrible thing like this to happen? You unpack it in your book. What is it that you'd most like us to take out of it? Well, this is one of those big questions with whom many of us who've thought about these things, and that's most of us have wrestled all our lives. And what I noticed during life about that discussion, uh, it goes back to uh, Lucretius, really, and Epicurus and David Hume, who are always cited in this, that uh, God's goodness is incompatible with his power because look at the evil in the universe. But since we do not seem to be able to solve that, I ask a different question, and that's because I'm a mathematician. If we bash our heads on one question for centuries, we often say, are we asking the right question? I wonder if we are here. 
The fact is that we are confronted as we look at the world with a mixed picture. We see beauty like the stars in the night out in your farm in Australia. And we see ugliness. We see pandemics. We see barbed wire bombs and terrorism. And the world presents us with that mixed picture. And we've got to face it and no worldview worthy of its salt that doesn't uh, is worthy of its salt if it doesn't face that. So I ask the question, is there anywhere any evidence that there exists a God of such a kind that we could trust with that? That's a very hard question. But it seems to me that Christianity explores this not only rationally, but opens a window on a possibility. It doesn't give us a simplistic solution. And I wouldn't insult anybody's intelligence by suggesting that. But in my book, I point out that at the heart of Christianity, there is suffering. And if Jesus is, as he claimed to be, God incarnate, then we can legitimately ask, what is God doing on a cross? And it surely shows, at the very least, that God has not remained distant from human suffering, but has become part of it. But if that were all, we'd never have heard of Jesus. And the second half of the story is the one where Lewis has helped me such a great deal. And that is the resurrection, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And therefore, death is not the end. And that throws a totally different light on suffering. You see, I understand people because I know many of them who look at this problem and Hume's formulation of it and say, well, therefore, it's obvious. The answer is there's no God. And at one level, they appear to have resolved the intellectual problem, but they have not resolved the suffering and the pain. They haven't removed it. It's still there. But what they've clearly removed, and many of them will admit it, is all ultimate hope. Now, that may be the situation, but... It seems to me we need to explore further a credible alternative that goes deeply into that problem and offers us real hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Atheism has nothing to say something of COVID-19. Christianity won't necessarily mean that they're cured of it, but it has something to say. It can tell them that through a simple step of commitment to Christ and repenting of the mess they've made of their lives and perhaps their, uh, those of others, they can enter into a new kind of life which transcends COVID. Now, I think that if that's true, that is worth communicating. And that is part of what my book is about. Now, I know this is a very inadequate presentation, but if your watchers and listeners want to hear more, I arrived in New Zealand two days after the earthquake at Christchurch, and someone has put together a web page about what I said to the people of New Zealand when they had to meet uh, folks who had lost relatives uh, in that earthquake, which is what we call natural evil, just as COVID-19 is. And if they Google my name in New Zealand, they will perhaps find something that will help them to see a bit more detail in it. And then, of course, there is my little book. Well, thank you for being very modest. I think what you've just said is very helpful. The alternative to say that it's just an accident, everything's an accident, it's just in our DNA, is somehow 
very empty and quite devastating if you think it's stopping through. There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no explanation. The wounds will never be bound up, the pain will never end, there is no hope. I don't know that we can really survive without hope. It's not easy, but one offers a difficult road to hope, the other it seems to me to suggest that there is no such thing as hope, it's an irrelevant human longing anyway. So why suffering? Does anyone understand? Will there ever be any relief? Will the wounds be bound up? If it's all meaningless, then no one understands. There'll be no healing. There's no hope. It won't end. What a despairing place that seems to me. And I wonder whether it hasn't, this lack of hope now, permeated our culture in a really serious way. We, we see unhappiness, uh, anxiety, depression, self-harm, uh, very deeply enmeshed now in Western culture. We need, despite our material well-being, we need more. I'm sure you're absolutely right. And that's why programs like this are very important because unfortunately in my country, at least the media are very biased against serious discussion of what Christianity has to say. And it's very interesting in the UK in recent days, Church attendance in virtual services has gone up. It's multiplied by five to ten times. And it shows that people want to investigate whether the God solution has anything to say in the midst of the pandemic. But you're absolutely right. And my heart goes out to young people who have been fed a superficial materialism and have no not even the beginning of an understanding of what Christianity has to say. So it's important, and that's one of the reasons I stepped into the public arena, to call out some of these very inadequate understandings of culture and of history and of Christianity, and to try to inject some real hope into the situation that's not just a panacea or trivial. Yes, it does seem to me, to go back to the point you raised earlier, it's dangerous to wash history out. Now, in one sense, Christianity is history, isn't it? I mean, the Bible is, is history. Uh, it has to be read as history. Uh, and that's valuable, but we've lost any understanding of it, very little understanding of what the Bible actually says now in our culture. The people who have wanted it eradicated have been surprisingly successful. Uh, now they feel free to interpret it if it happens to suit to them. We often see this in the media. Oh, but that's not Christian, as though they have an understanding of what the Bible actually says is Christian. But to go back uh, to my earlier remarks about critical theory uh, and uh, that whole movement, it seems we've actually reached the point in this age of biblical illiteracy that it's very easy for Christians or opponents of Christianity now to say not just that it's odd or that it's irrelevant or that it's not true, but to actually say that it's hurtful or even harmful. Now that of course opens the way uh, in this age when we have competing human rights all set out in law for people to say those who follow Christianity and who promote its, the teachings of the Bible uh, to be seen as people who are potentially criminals because they're saying things that, that are harmful that are more than hate speech, they actually do damage. I don't think we could have got to that point if we hadn't so destroyed an understanding of our own history and as a part of that, what real Christianity 
uh, actually is so that people can make choices about whether or not it's true and whether or not they will believe. We need to reaffirm the huge cultural influence of Christianity on our, on our Western societies. We owe far more to uh, the biblical worldview than we realize in terms of the things we take for granted, human rights, civilized behavior, and all that kind of thing goes straight back to Christianity. And as for the latter point you make of Christianity being harmful, I used to wonder why there is so much uh, emphasis made in the Gospels on the trial of Jesus as distinct from his death. But when this wave of Christianity is dangerous came up, I could see why. Because what many people fail to realize is that the charge that Jesus was um, charged with was that of terrorism and insurrection. And he appeared before the Roman governor who acquitted him of the charge. But the very interesting thing is that the central part of the discussion was the nature of Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus said to Pilate, look, my kingdom is not of this world. In what sense did he mean it? Well, he explained. Otherwise, my servants would have been fighting. And Pilate knew that Jesus had not resisted arrest and had also protected one of the high priest's servants, healed his ear, actually, when two of the disciples very foolishly took swords. And Pilate realized that here was a person who was not violent and would not uh, have his kingdom progressed by violent means. So he, to the world, declared him as innocent. Because, and I think this is the important thing, Pilate realized, as all of us must, that the one thing you cannot enforce by violence is truth, especially if it's truth about the love of God, peace with God, salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, and all this kind of thing. And therefore, I think it's important for us to go back into the history, because, of course, Christianity is all to do with the person of Jesus, who is a historical figure. He lived, he died, he rose again. All of those things accessible through historical methods. And we need to affirm that because there's no Christianity without him. And he dealt with the kind of problem that's being brought up in his name. Now, I come from Northern Ireland, so I'm acutely aware of the kind of allegations made against Christianity. They are reasonable allegations against perverted Christianity or Christendom. But anybody who takes a sword or an AK-47 to, to um, protect Christ or his message is not following him, but disobeying him explicitly. And we need yeah. to explain that. Well, yes, yes. Uh, there's a specific eschewing of violence, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, with Jesus' response to the cutting off uh, of, uh, uh, of the authorities' ear. And it makes it plain that any attempt to enforce a view uh, about Christianity, to force people to believe at the point of a sword, if I can put it that way, is wrong and not supported. It's specifically rejected by the founder of Christianity. Any attempt to enforce Christianity has that effect of cutting the ears 
of people in a, a deeper sense. They don't want to listen to the Christian faith, and that's why we are where we are today. So I'm in the business of putting the ears back on people. I'd like to circle back to C.S. Lewis and what he had to say about the challenge of making a decision uh, about the central figure in history of Christ. But before we do that, you've debated some of the finest minds in the world, people who do not believe, who argue that science disproves God or whatever. So Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, for example, can I ask you, the thing that always worries me is that they're intent upon tearing down what little remains of our cultural house, because supposedly that's a good thing to do. But I would have thought burning down what's left of your house is pretty horrible unless you have a better house for us to go to. And I'm wondering what that better house might actually be. What better house is Richard Dawkins or was Christopher Hitchens suggesting that we move to? Uh, I understand that even Dawkins has recognised that Christianity is in such a rapid state of collapse in Britain that he himself wonders. I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I understand this to be the case. Wonders just how we might find a way to live going forward. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I genuinely don't. But you've debated these people um, and gazed with them um, at a level that I certainly have. And I just wonder how they think the rejection of Christianity is going to help us create a better world. I, I'm genuinely puzzled by it, as well as challenged by it, uh, and, I, and I say that very sincerely. Well, there'll be people who'll say they're a good atheist, and I'm accepting that point. I don't argue with that. There are many good people and many bad people, and sometimes it has less to do with what they believe than might first meet the eye. Uh, but, but the question is here, as in my mind, is where there is a better place and a better way for us to live. Where is it? And you've had the opportunity to really discuss these things at great length. Can you enlighten me? It's utopia. It's no place. And um, I don't think it exists. And they're very reluctant to do it. There's a lovely scene that's on the internet, actually, where um, I'm debating with a number of atheists in the Oxford Union. And on my side was Peter Hitchens, the brother of the late Christopher Hitchens. Mm -hmm. And he addresses them by saying uh, to the audience, he says, you know, these people are not telling you what their belief system leads to. And it's, it's pretty feisty stuff. But I think Peter was absolutely right. They don't really tell us the implications of what Dawkins calls the fact that uh, DNA just is and we dance to its music and uh, by that statement he abolishes all morality even though he claims to be a moral being. I think it is uh, solely destructive and they've nothing to put in its place and therefore it's reflective it seems to me not of something intellectually solid but of a gut reaction. They don't want God in their lives. It's a visceral anti-God. It's not simply anti-Christian. It's an anti-God feeling. And it's, we will not have this man to reign over us. And I, I have had that impression in, in debating these people. I do not think their arguments are substantial. And I, I fear that the blind uh, rejection of God is actually undermining their intellectual credibility. Now, I know that's a pretty strong statement, and it's pretty formidable, as you can imagine, debating such people. But one of the reasons I've done it 
John, is because I believe that they have nothing to offer. The atheist emperor has no clothes. And the more we can spell out the logical consequences, including the undermining of science, including the abolition of morality, and all of these things, the more we call them out and people see that they are naked and they have nothing to offer. Well, you made some very powerful and challenging remarks. and I'm always keen for people to look those challenges in the eye and not simply brush them under the carpet. They're too important. And of course, C.S. Lewis made the very powerful point that given that we know of the existence of Christ, I mean, it's a nonsense to say that he, there's no evidence to suggest that he lived. I mean, we, that, that just, I don't believe that, honestly don't believe that washes. The question then becomes, well, just who was he? Because you don't have many choices. As Lewis pointed out, he's either a man who's mad to the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, uh, or he's essentially who he claimed to be, the option of just saying, well, he was a good man and a moral teacher isn't open to us. I mean, people don't go around saying the things he did and making the claims that he did and performing the acts that he did uh, if they're just a madman, and nor are madmen generally remembered for very long, especially if they lived in a very obscure little tribe uh, in the Middle East a very long time ago. Who do atheists say, given the limited choices that Jesus was, if they're being serious rather than flippant and simply out of anger rejecting the idea of his existence? Well, I get the strong impression that they don't really want to go there. But whenever you get into one of these conversations with someone who wants to reject Christianity, the thing they don't want to do is to go to the question of who is Christ. This is the difficulty. You get a Dawkins saying, well, there's uh, some people believe that Jesus never existed. And he says graciously then that, although I don't go there, but he then quotes his source. But his source is a retired professor of German not an ancient historian. And that kind of levity and superficiality when no ancient historian that I have read, and I've read many, would deny that Jesus existed. Indeed, they're agreed about many things, even atheist ancient historians. Read Edwin Judge on that, who brilliantly assesses the stuff. That is such a low level. That's Bertrand Russell. Uh, who originally, well, he was one of the people that, that raised that question. And they don't read uh, what the Gospels say, and they misinterpret. If people watch my debate with Peter Singer in Melbourne uh, Town Hall or City Hall, they'll see he brought up the Transfiguration. And uh, he doesn't believe Jesus because he was wrong about the second coming. And his misreading of the transfiguration is spectacular, as his, his understanding, by the way, of the cursing of the fig tree. I just feel that they just grasp at what is most obvious to them, but they don't do what they do in their own field, and that is to consult the experts in the field and what they think. It is absolutely amazing to me. Uh, one spectacular example of that is uh, A.C. Grayling, who took up his pen as a column writer for The New Scientist. And the first uh, 
article was on Jesus accepts you to believe, expects you to believe without evidence. And I thought this is going to be very interesting. And it was Grayling commenting on the discussion between Jesus and the Apostle Thomas in John chapter 20. And Grayling says, there you are, you see. Um, Jesus says uh, to them, Thomas, because you saw, you believe, but blessed are those that have not seen but yet believe. There you are, says Grayling. Jesus expects you to believe without evidence. And my attitude to that is, can the man not read? Because Jesus didn't say that he wanted his followers to believe without evidence. He said, blessed are the people who haven't seen, that is physically seen. And of course, visual sighting is evidence, but it's not the only kind of evidence. And the sheer irony of Grayling's misunderstanding there is illustrated by the very next statement in the text, which says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. Here's the evidence. Grayling didn't even read that. And for someone who claims to be a leading philosopher, that is, to my mind, it discredits his intellectual credibility. Well, I take the point. It seems almost trite to say, but until you've actually read the source materials of those Gospels in particular, you're not really in a position to say what Jesus did or did not say. No, and that's hugely important, John. I say to many people, look, today people are biblically illiterate. That's not always their own fault. But before you reject Christianity, please listen and read to what it says. Because until you have heard what it says, you won't begin to understand what's going on. And you'd be in danger of rejecting something infinitely precious and valuable that can completely change your life on a very superficial basis. So start by reading and listening before you make your judgment. Well, I'm a father and a grandfather, quite apart from somebody who being somebody who was for a long time involved in public life and believed very much in, in good public policy as a deep commitment. So I find that I, I do worry deeply at many levels about the sort of future that we're bestowing upon our children. It seems we've stripped them of the tools they need to break down and understand the world around them. And I also think we've damaged their hope. We've stripped hope away. In many ways, they ought to be more inquiring and to demand more answers. But we've led them by our, own, by our own actions, to be fair, I think, to lose faith in many of the institutions in the West, including governments, including our economic arrangements, uh, many of the institutions of a free society. The surveys are quite clear. Many young people have lost confidence in democracy and in capitalism without understanding that the alternatives, as Churchill put it, are pretty dreadful. And, and what concerns me now is that I think we're going to hand them an absolute mess beyond all imagine, out of uh, imagination, out of COVID. And if I may say so, uh, Britain is no exception. Britain's debt levels are truly mind-boggling and they're rising very rapidly. The, the price for managing that will fall to our children and our grandchildren. Why do I raise that when we're talking about uh, matters uh, non-material? Well, 
It's because I think a large part of our mess is because we've lost our moral compass. Governments have behaved in untrustworthy ways. Bankers have done the same. Businessmen have engaged in crony capitalism and it's led to this breakdown in trust and confidence and the surge of cynicism that's pretty prevalent today. Young people are going to need hope, John. How do we offer them that hope in an age when it's so hard to break through and capture people's attention and provide an environment where we can talk and communicate and exchange ideas, challenge one another, offer ideas and hope? That's not an easy question. I'm a father, I've got 10 grandchildren. And the difficulty, John, as you know, the generic questions, they're very difficult to answer. How do we give them hope? There are millions of them. And every yeah. single child is an individual and looking towards the future. And many are in despair at the moment. Well, all I can say at the practical level is the intergenerational contact is even more important today than it ever was. And I'm thrilled to say, and I got to say it, that my wife keeps such contact with my grandchildren that she's able, using Skype and so on and texting, to nurture them in the faith. And the older ones coming in teenage now are beginning to look at their world through strongly Christian eyes. And that, that thrills us to see that happening. There's no guarantee it will, of course. But to get something in, I can imagine that if you and I had been living in the Roman Empire and had been among the uh, first Christians, we would have also been confronting a very difficult future scenario. And every generation is concerned for the next one. But you're absolutely right. We are passing on a catastrophe, it seems to me, economically and every other way. And the root of it is, as you observed, it's the loss of moral compass. It's the loss of any transcendence. It's the loss of absolute values. And it's the loss of God. And when Alexander Solzhenitsyn was asked to sum up succinctly what had happened and why a hundred million of his fellow citizens had perished, he says, the answer is we have forgotten God. And therefore it's incumbent upon us, uh, a diminishing minority now in some countries, to bring God back into the picture uh, before it's too late. But it may be too late, at least for this generation. It's It's very hard to say that, but I'm no politician, you are, so you would well, be much better fixed to say than me. Well, these are great and weighty matters, John, and thank you for your bravery and your courage, as I said at the outset, for your clarity and your civility. I think it's been said that we should uh, be known by our love, and you're very honest, I think, too, in a way that's really impressive. I think that's admirable because young people do recognise authenticity when it's really put before them. They're not going to be able to sit on the fence much longer. It's an uncomfortable place. The reality is that the world's becoming so polarised that people have to make a choice. They've got to jump one way or the other. They'll have to make the choices that for so long in our material comfort we haven't made because we've not had to confront them about what is the purpose of life? Is there hope? Do I believe? Do I not believe? 
And I think the future will be very different to the one that we've experienced as a baby boomer. Uh, we've been very fortunate indeed. I just hope there are enough people out there who are looking for a better way before it's too late. So John, thank you very much indeed. It's my pleasure and thank you for a very interesting conversation. And uh, one thing that encourages me is that this kind of thing is being done. So as the Irish say, John, more power to your elbow. <laughs> and as a Scottish Australian, I say it's wonderful talking to an Irishman on friendly terms. Yes, well, of course, my ancestors are Scottish, so I'm closer than you think. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.